The Laotian connection to Shan State became increasingly important in the 1960s. The Vietnamese War had just begun, but the U.S. had promised in the 1962 Geneva Accords to respect the neutrality of the Kingdom of Laos. The pro-communist Patet Lao guerrillas were active in Laos, supported by the North Vietnamese, so this inevitably drew Laos into the Vietnamese conflict. In practice, the Geneva Agreement meant that any U.S. war effort in Laos had to be unofficial. It would therefore be organized through mercenary armies and supported by the CIA and other secret services. The war in Laos became the CIA's second secret war in the Golden Triangle area, following the Gomindang operation in Burma by about a decade. The Laotian War lasted from 1961 to 1975. Like the previous Gomindang operation in Burma, it involved air flights in and out of regions where the chief cash crop was opium. Laotian opium production had increased dramatically during World War II, when Chinese and the Middle Eastern producers could no longer reach the French opium monopoly in Indochina. After France withdrew from Indochina in 1954, several hundred French war veterans, colonial administrators, and gangsters stayed on, primarily in Laos. Just as the Italian mafia are usually from Sicily, French gangsters usually come from the island of Corsica. Some of them had started a number of small chartered airlines in Laos, which became collectively known as Air Opium, according to Alfred McCoy. Ostensibly founded to supply otherwise unavailable transportation for civilian businessmen and diplomats, these airlines gradually restored Laos's link to the drug markets of South Vietnam that had vanished with the departure of the French Air Force in 1954. These airlines continued flying until 1965, when political upheavals in Laos forced all the Corsican airlines out of business. Nevertheless, by 1965, a much more sophisticated air transport network had been established. An air base was carved out of the mountains at Long Tieng. The CIA's airline, Air America, flew in tons of supplies and American military advisors from the Laotian capital, Vientiane, and from various U.S. Air Force bases in Thailand. The planes were supplying a 40,000-strong mercenary force of tribesmen from the Laotian highlands. Opium was becoming increasingly important for the national economy of Laos, a landlocked country with few natural resources. Even Sisuk Nachampasak, the Laotian finance minister, told the British Broadcasting Corporation in a 1970 interview, The only export we can develop here is opium, and we should increase our production and export of it. The improved infrastructure created by the war replaced the chartered airlines of the Corsican gangsters. More opium was brought in by rebel groups and private armies from Burma's Shan state to be exchanged for guns. The main buyer was the commander-in-chief of the Royal Laotian Army, General Juan Ratikon. He had lots of weapons to offer, mostly of U.S. stock. Heroin was now becoming popular, rapidly replacing opium as the drug of choice in the region. General Wan owned heroin refineries that worked overtime to process Laotian and Burmese opium. Northwest Laos became one of the largest heroin-producing centers in the world. Official Laotian involvement in the drug trade became an international embarrassment in 1971. Prince Sosaisana, the former vice president of the Laotian National Assembly and ambassador-designate to France, was arrested at Orly Airport in Paris. His suitcase contained 60 kilograms of high-grade Laotian heroin worth 13.5 million U.S. dollars. But the well-connected Laotian prince was let off lightly. France simply refused to accept his diplomatic credentials, and he was recalled to Laos after two months in Paris. The war against the Laotian insurgents, or Pathet Lao, was no more successful than the CIA's earlier Gomindang operation. Laotian communists were gradually gaining ground. Desperate Laotian army officers became even more eager to sell guns to get hard currency, which they would need in order to flee the country. The Burmese government was also in deep trouble, financially and politically. 
To fight the insurgents, Burma's military ruler, General Ne Win, had in 1963 authorized any local band to become a kakweye, that is, a home guard under the government. These local militia forces would fight the rebels. In return, they could use government-controlled roads and towns in Shan State for opium smuggling. Ne Win hoped the kakweye militia would be self-supporting, because there was hardly any money in Burma's treasury to sustain a counterinsurgency campaign. But the deal with Burma's Home Guard also was an attempt to undermine the financial basis of the Shan state rebels. The rebels depended on an opium tax to maintain their troops and to buy guns from Laos. As the Ka Kwe Ye commanders gradually expanded their hold over the opium trade, many of them became rich at the expense of some of the rebel groups. Numerous local warlords developed their own fiefdoms, building private armies and purchasing military equipment on the black market in Thailand and Laos. By the late 1960s, heroin became extremely popular, and the largest clientele was to be found among the American soldiers in Vietnam. When the GIs returned home, the narcotics problem went from Saigon's army barracks to middle-class suburbs in the United States. The public became alarmed, and U.S. authorities started taking measures to solve the drug problem. Washington built up its powerful Drug Enforcement Administration, the DEA. Millions of dollars were funneled into the Hill Tribe economy, mainly in the Thai sector, to provide the opium farmers with substitute crops. The poppy fields and the so-called drug kingpins became the most important targets of American drug enforcement in Southeast Asia. In the 1970s, the U.S. pledged to support official anti-narcotics efforts in Burma, and it began supporting the regime in Rangoon. This startled some observers. The two most notorious of Burma's opium kings, Law Shinghan and Chang Chifu, alias Kun Sa, had actually begun their careers as Kakweye home guard commanders serving under the Burmese army. The Shan state was devastated by war and corrupted by the narcotics trade. Many of these problems were created with the complicity of Western governments such as the U.S., Britain, and France. Sai Lao Tseng, a local Shan observer, explained why the West was increasingly involved in a losing situation. There is a strong tendency on the part of many Western observers to misjudge the situation in the Golden Triangle to ignore history, to look for easy answers, to gloss over official complicity in the drug trade. This remains the main reason why the West has made no headway whatsoever in the battle against the international narcotics trade. By the early 1970s, the Golden Triangle was completely entangled in conflicting interests. It soon became impossible to say where drug running ended and insurgency or counterinsurgency began. To add to the confusion, various Asian and Western intelligence agencies had a stake in the opium trade. Some ran pure money-making operations. Others developed relationships with drug traders who proved to be valuable intelligence assets. Burma remained a closed country, firmly in the grip of xenophobic military rulers. Independent observers were denied access to Burma's sector of the Golden Triangle. But Thailand became a remarkably open country in the 1970s, despite seemingly never-ending coups and counter-coups. Thailand realized at an early stage that a good international reputation was the key to international backing, and this backing was deemed crucial for the survival of the Thai political system. Thailand's international reputation became even more important after 1975. During that year, the fragile pro-Western regimes rapidly fell in Cambodia, South Vietnam, and Laos. Communist forces took over all the governments that once had formed French Indochina. Vietnam was reunified in 1976. Hundreds of thousands of South Vietnamese soldiers and civil servants were sent to remote re-education camps. 
Laos introduced a similar system where old enemies were subjected to intense communist indoctrination. But the real horrors were experienced in Cambodia, where the dreaded Khmer Rouge, led by Pol Pot, seized power. Foreign correspondents who had covered the war from Phnom Penh in the early 1970s later recalled that some journalists used to sing a little song to the tune of She Was Poor But She Was Honest. Oh, will there be a dreadful bloodbath when the Khmer Rouge comes to town? Aye, there'll be a dreadful bloodbath when the Khmer Rouge come to town. The memory of this attempt at humor is especially painful because the bloodbath which few really expected did occur in Cambodia. The entire society was turned upside down. Cities and towns were emptied of their populations and marched out into the countryside where hundreds of thousands died from disease and starvation. Hundreds of thousands more were executed by the Khmer Rouge. The country was turned into a virtual killing field. The new national anthem of Cambodia, or Kampuchea, as the Khmer Rouge called it, blared over public loudspeakers every morning and evening. Bright red blood, which covers our fields and plains of Kampuchea, our motherland, sublime blood of workers and peasants, sublime blood of revolutionary men and women fighters, the blood changing into unrelenting hatred and resolute struggle under the flag of the revolution, free from slavery. Thailand opposed the murderous regime in Cambodia, and it opposed the somewhat more humane but still communist governments in Laos and Vietnam. Thailand desperately needed international support and sympathy. Foreign companies were encouraged to invest in Thailand. The United Nations and its various agencies were invited to make Bangkok their regional base. Bangkok also became the press center of Southeast Asia. It was the only place in the region where foreign correspondents could operate with few restrictions. Further to show goodwill, Thai authorities began an extensive crop substitution program in their sector of the Golden Triangle. The United Nations and various international agencies began supplying the hill peoples with potatoes, kidney beans, coffee and other cash crops to steer them away from poppy cultivation. The effort soon paid off and Thailand's annual opium production declined from 57 tons in 1982 to 10 or 15 tons in 1987. But Thailand had always been a minor opium producer in the Golden Triangle. Its main role was in shipping opium to markets elsewhere. Despite international efforts, Thailand's role in drug distribution did not stop. In February 1988, the U.S. General Accounting Office submitted a report to Congress about drug control in Asia. Narcotics-related corruption is a major barrier to effective enforcement in Thailand. Police corruption is widespread in Thailand and is accepted as a means of supplementing police salaries, which are considered low even by Thai standards. A major U.S. mission objective is to influence Thai government leadership to acknowledge the endemic corruption that exists among officials charged with narcotics control responsibilities. In July 1989, a U.S. District Court in Brooklyn indicted Thailand's police general Vet Petborom, charging that he was a controlling force in the shipment of about 12 pounds of heroin seized four and a half years earlier at John F. Kennedy Airport in New York. The Thai Police Department suspended General Vett from his post in August 1989. But he was not extradited to the United States. He was given early retirement. The situation in the Golden Triangle remained depressingly normal.
The Thais were caught in a dilemma. They needed support from the nations concerned about communism and drugs, but many drug trafficking bands in Thailand were closely connected to Thailand security agencies, and the Thais benefited economically from the trade. There was rampant corruption, but laundered drug money was reinvested in the local economy. The U.S. Congressional Committee on Narcotics Abuse and Control received a submission as early as July 1977 from an anonymous Far Eastern source. This so-called American Living in Thailand explained, There are several strong reasons for the Thais to unofficially countenance the presence of these groups along the northern border. Of practical importance is the valuable intelligence the Thais receive from them about communist activity in northeastern Burma. The Communist Party of Burma has control of around half the opium harvest, and it disposes of the raw opium by selling it to traders. The volume has become such that the northwestern Thai town's economy has become an appendage of it. Profits from the sale of opium and heroin are generally reinvested in another illegal trade. Basic dry goods and things like radios are bought from northern Thai merchants for shipment across the border and illegal sale in Burma. If the narcotics traffic is forcibly stopped, the economy in the area will be wrecked. The Thai nightmare was that Burma's communist forces, who ideologically resembled the Khmer Rouge of Cambodia, would link up with the insurgent Thai Communist Party. This would open a direct supply line for the communist insurgency from China down to Thailand. So the Thais generally turned a blind eye to both the Gomindang and the private army of the notorious opium warlord Khun Sa. Token attacks were launched against them every now and then, mainly to appease international opinion. The Gomindang and Khun Sa sent their troops to fight alongside the Thai army against the Thai communists and to protect road construction crews in sensitive areas where there was communist insurgency. Then, in early 1979, the Vietnamese occupied Cambodia. The Khmer Rouge was ousted, and Pol Pot fled with his men to the Thai border. The balance of power was upset once again. China, which had been the Khmer Rouge's principal foreign ally and Vietnam's main enemy, now needed Thailand's cooperation in order to support the Khmer Rouge. Astonishingly, Thailand agreed. But the condition was firm. China had to end its support for the Thai communists. A seemingly unlikely alliance was formed between Pol Pot's Khmer Rouge, the anti-communist Thai government, and Beijing. Their common enemy was Vietnam. By playing a risky but rather skillful game with regional security politics, Thailand's position emerged even stronger than before. By the end of the 1980s, there was virtually no communist insurgency in Thailand. Yet, as we'll see, the unexpected rapprochement with China didn't cause the Thais to lower their vigilance. Khun Sa and other warlords were still wooed as valuable intelligence assets against a revived insurgency, and national security, plus the vast amounts of money the drug trade generated, were still considered much more important than fighting narcotics, not only in Thailand, but also in Burma. In early 1987, John Lawn, director of the U.S. Drug Enforcement Administration, visited Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia. Before a gathering of anti-narcotics agencies, he called for no mercy in the war on drugs. He urged Southeast Asian governments, in his words, to take on hostile opium growers in armed confrontations. The Bangkok media soon reported that Burmese government forces had attacked the drug lord Khun Sa at his stronghold in Burma. Casualties were high, the newspapers said. One Thai newspaper suggested that F-5E jet fighters might be used in bombing Khun Sa's bases in a coordinated drive with the Burmese army. In mid-March, the Thai military authorities declared that the anti-Khun Sa drive was a success. But in April, only a few weeks later, the infamous American POW hunter Bo Gritz visited Kunsa's Homong headquarters. 
he was astonished to find no damage in the camp. We did not see a bullet hole, a shell mark, or a bomb crater anywhere. There was no smell of cordite in the air. There was not so much as a burnt leaf to mark what was supposed to have been a war with thousands of Burmese and Thai troops fighting against the drug kingpin Kun Sa. When asked about the recent fighting, the warlord laughed heartily and said, Oh, that. That was a newspaper war. Gritz became curious. When I questioned Kun Sa about the matter, he said that Thai and Burmese officials had both come to him early in January and said that they stood to lose millions of dollars in U.S. drug suppression funds unless they made it look like they were doing something. So they worked out a deal. Kun Sa agreed to let them come up to the border and fire off their guns and a few rockets into the air so that they could claim that they were doing their part in fighting this monster whom U.S. Ambassador Brown in Bangkok had described as the worst enemy the world has. Kun Sa agreed to the charade if officials would build a new road from Mae Hong Son in Thailand up to his headquarters in Burma. Bulldozers and earth-moving machines soon roared through the jungle. Hundreds of Thai construction workers mingled with uniformed Kun Sa troops as the road was carved out of the border mountains. By April, trucks, cars, and jeeps began traveling this new road, carrying arms, ammunition, and rations for Kun Sa's troops. Dignitaries visited Kun Sa. A flow of curious foreign journalists even filmed the road. But officially, the road did not exist. This new, unusual road was mentioned before the Committee on Foreign Affairs at the U.S. House of Representatives in July 1987. Asked why the Thais had built this road, Anne B. Robleski, Assistant Secretary of State for International Narcotics Matters, replied, Well, we're as curious as everybody else. We queried our embassy in Bangkok and asked them for their response. The road was built for the specific purpose of allowing easy access by Thai security forces into the area to control the illegal cross-border trade in arms as well as narcotics. Mrs. Robleski lavishly praised the governments of Thailand and Burma for suppressing the narcotics trade. In reality, the much-publicized Opium War of 1987 produced only one casualty, a young soldier in Kunsa's army was hurt when he fell off a large truck while traveling along the new road to his headquarters. Inevitably, this famous road became an international embarrassment despite attempts to cover up the whole affair. The ties moved in and dynamited it. Yet a few days later, the bulldozers were back and the road was rebuilt. By 1991, a network of four roads connected Kunsa's headquarters with the highway system of northern Thailand. It all strikingly resembled the 1950s, when Thai police general Pao Sriyanon staged his theatrical operations against the Gobindang. In the end, little had really changed. On September 5, 1987, the announcer of the Burmese government's official radio read out a brief message. The State Council proclaims the following ordinance to have the same force as law. Ordinance number 1 of 1987. The 25, 35 and 75 Jat currency notes issued by the Union of Burma Bank will cease to be legal tender as of 11 a.m. on Saturday, the 5th of September, 1987. The 13th day of the waxing moon of Todalin, year 1349 of the Burmese calendar. No reason was given. In one sweep, between 60 and 80 percent of all money circulating in Burma had become worthless. The announcement came at a time when the final exams were approaching for the students in Rangoon. This is also when they have to pay their yearly fees, and suddenly most of their money was gone. Within minutes, there was an outburst at the prestigious Institute of Technology in Burma's capital, Rangoon. 
Three hundred enraged students stormed out of the campus, smashed traffic lights, and burned government vehicles. It was all over in a few hours. The outburst was quickly suppressed. But the government was shaken. For the first time in more than a decade, Burma's students had demonstrated against General Nguyen's iron-fisted rule. Universities and colleges in Rangoon were closed. Students from upcountry were bussed back to their hometowns, where they were received as heroes by the local people. Throughout Burma, there surfaced a simmering discontent with the country's autocratic rulers. Since Nguyen's takeover in 1962, the so-called Burmese way to socialism had been a disaster. Black marketeers had been the most, some say, the only enterprising sector of the Burmese economy. They supplied the country with more than 80% of its consumer goods, and the 1987 demonetization was said to have been aimed at wiping out their black money. But the black marketeers could easily make up for the loss with a few more deals. The ones hurt were the ordinary people who lost their savings. The aging general Nguyen, never a sound economic planner, had increasingly permitted superstition to overshadow rational government planning. Oddly denominated banknotes were one result. Two new odd denominations were now issued: 45 and 90 chats. Nguyen's lucky number was nine, according to his chief astrologer. So the new 45 and 90 chat notes were denominated in figures that added up to nine. Four plus five equals nine, and nine plus zero equals nine. By early 1988, years of frustration among ordinary Burmese had gradually turned into open opposition against the country's inept anachronistic regime. The situation was becoming so tense that even a small incident had the potential to develop into a mass movement. On March 12, 1988, a Saturday night, three young students strolled into a Rangoon tea shop. They began arguing with some local people about which music to play, and the two sides came to blows. The police intervened and mishandled the situation completely. Students protested the following day and were savagely fired upon. Several were killed. Wounded students were brought to hospitals and chained to their beds. Armed guards were placed outside their wards. The Burmese public decided they'd had enough. Thousands of people took to the streets in Rangoon on March 18th. The police and the army responded fiercely. Both male and female students were clubbed to death. Arrested students were crammed into a police van, which sat for hours in the heat. Forty-one young people died by suffocation. The tea shop incident was the spark that finally ignited a massive pro-democracy movement across the country. The brutality did not stop the protests. After all, the Burma public was forty million strong, and the ruling elite was only a handful. Nguyen and his cronies remained in power only because they controlled nearly 200,000 men in the armed forces. The public counted on the fact that the average army soldier was an ordinary village boy. Surely the troops would eventually realize that there was no point in defending a government that had lost all popular support. A nationwide general strike was called for August 8, 1988. That is on 8:8. 88. At eight minutes past 8 a.m., dock workers in Rangoon walked out. When word spread, people began marching toward the city center, brandishing flags, banners, and placards. Many carried portraits of the assassinated national hero, General Aung San, the architect of Burma's independence. Aung San still symbolized everything that Burma was not, but should have been: peaceful, democratic, and prosperous. Peter Conard, a Bangkok-based Buddhist scholar, happened to be in Burma that week in August 1988. I was standing on the balcony of my hotel room just before 9 a.m. when I spotted some masked youths on bicycles racing down the almost empty road outside, calling out something in Burmese. Apparently, they were announcing that the demonstrators were coming. A few minutes later. Some students came and formed human chains around the soldiers who were posted at the main intersections. I was told that the students intended to protect the troops from possible violent attacks from the demonstrators. 
and then the first marchers arrived. I saw them coming in a massive column across the railway bridge on Sule Pagoda Road, with flags and banners heading for the city center. There were thousands of them, clenching their fists and chanting anti-government slogans. People came out of their houses, applauding and cheering the demonstrators on. Hundreds of thousands came. Among them was a disciplined column of Buddhist monks who carried their alms bowls upside down to symbolize that the whole nation was on strike. Within an hour, the entire city center was packed with cheering people. A 22-year-old British student, Georgina Allen, said, You couldn't see the end of it. House balconies were crammed with spectators and some went up to the rooftops. About ten makeshift podiums were erected outside the city hall, and one speaker after another denounced the government. Street vendors handed out cheroots, sweets, bread, and snacks to the demonstrators. People stuck wads of banknotes into the hands of the ones who seemed to be the organizers. The few foreign journalists who had made it into Burma were cheered when they raised their cameras to take pictures of the marchers. Some young demonstrators even walked up to the lines of troops, unbuttoned their shirts and shouted, Shoot me if you dare. At 11.30 p.m., trucks roared from behind Rangoon City Hall with machine guns pointed straight ahead. Spontaneously, the thousands of demonstrators at the nearby Sul Pagoda began singing the national anthem. Two pistol shots rang out, and then machine gun fire reverberated in the dark between the old colonial buildings of central Rangoon. People fell in droves. They scattered, screaming into alleys and doorways, stumbling over open gutters, crouching by walls. In a new wave of panic, they began running again. Richard Gourlay, who was in Rangoon on that fateful day, wrote in the Financial Times, Eyewitnesses saw armored cars driving up to groups of demonstrators and opening fire indiscriminately, challenging official claims that they were using only moderate force. Some witnesses reported seeing demonstrators carrying bodies of dead protesters over their heads as they marched through the streets. The shooting continued until about 3 a.m. on August 9th. On August 11th, the U.S. Senate unanimously condemned the brutality in Burma. This news reached Rangoon by radio on the Voice of America Burmese service. People cheered in their homes as the shooting continued outside. A State Department human rights report later described what happened in Rangoon between August 8th and 13th. Numerous eyewitness accounts confirmed that troops clashed and killed fleeing demonstrators and fired indiscriminately at onlookers and into houses. On the 10th of August, troops fired into a group of doctors, nurses and others in front of Rangoon General Hospital who were pleading with troops to stop shooting. Four separate eyewitness accounts of an August 10th incident in North Okalapa, a working-class suburb of Rangoon, describe how soldiers knelt in formation and fired repeatedly at demonstrators in response to an army captain's orders. The first casualties were five or six teenage girls who carried flags and a photograph of Burma's assassinated founding father, Aung San. All four eyewitnesses reported large numbers of dead and wounded and estimated several hundred casualties at the scene. Eyewitnesses reported similar incidents throughout Rangoon during the August 8th to 13th period. Deaths probably numbered over 2,000, but actual numbers can never be known. In many cases, as soon as they finished firing, troops carted off victims for surreptitious mass disposal in order to mask the extent of the carnage. The mass killings eventually ended and the streets of Rangoon were once more packed with protesters. A general strike was proclaimed and the country ground to a halt. Millions marched through virtually every city, town and major village across Burma. Daily mass demonstrations had never been seen in Southeast Asia. On August 26th, several hundred thousand gathered for what would be the biggest rally in the movement for democracy. They all wanted to see and hear Aung San Suu Kyi, the 43-year-old daughter of Burma's hero Aung San. 
She had returned to Burma from her home in Oxford, England, only months before to nurse her sick mother. Now, the movement needed a central figure, and she was pushed to the fore by the tidal wave of events. A huge portrait of her father and a resistance flag from World War II stood above the stage as reminders of the struggle for independence from Britain half a century before. Aung San Suu Kyi's first major speech was confident. The present crisis is the concern of the entire nation. I could not, as my father's daughter, remain indifferent to all that was going on. This national crisis could, in fact, be called the second struggle for independence. An observer later commented, We were all surprised. Not only did she look like her father, she spoke like him also, short, concise, and right to the point. Burma's democratic movement continued with renewed vigor. A popular leader had emerged at last. Aung San Suu Kyi was seen as a female reincarnation of Burma's independence hero. Street marches gained new momentum, and the center of the demonstrations became the U.S. Embassy in downtown Rangoon. Stan Sesser of the New Yorker magazine described the Burmese attitude towards America. When the ambassador Burton Levin rode in his official car with American flags flying on the fenders, the crowds would applaud as the Burmese knew the United States had been the first nation to condemn the brutal killings of Saint Luin in early August. Every day speeches were made on the street in front of the embassy. The theme of the speeches was democracy, and America became the symbol of everything the Burmese wanted and lacked. Some demonstrators carried the American flag, and at one point, a group of students came to the front door of the embassy and recited the Gettysburg Address, word for word, in English. But the government still refused to step down. After more than a month of daily protests, the army moved in again on September 18th. Trucks full of troops and armored cars with machine guns rolled into Rangoon in an operation entirely different from the August massacre. The forces were impeccably organized and the operation was coldly efficient. Any crowd in sight was mowed down systematically as the army vehicles rumbled down the streets in perfect formation. This continued for two days. A new military junta headed by General So Maung announced that it had restored law and order and that no more than 15 demonstrators were killed. Diplomats in Rangoon believed otherwise. They also claimed that Burma's strong man for nearly three decades, General Ne Win, was behind the move to shore up a regime overwhelmed by popular protest. The senseless massacre was condemned by all Western democracies and by Japan and India. Foreign aid to Burma was cut off by the U.S., Australia, Britain, Germany, and Japan. Eight to ten thousand pro-democracy activists immediately fled to Burma's border areas where the country's ethnic insurgents operate. Car and bus rides were followed by treks through the jungle. Aung Myint, a 23-year-old medical student, described their fear. We fled because we realized that this time it was different not a random massacre as in August. It was meticulously planned and the targets well selected. Because everything came out in the open during the demonstrations in August and September, all the leading activists were known and the army was looking for us specifically. It was not like before when it all had been underground and the secret police didn't know who the organizers were. And since the military, despite our massive protests, had chosen to seize power, not to give in to any of our demands, we realized that there was nothing more we could do in the urban areas. Our only choice was armed struggle, and we arrived at the border, believing that there would be foreign powers interested in helping us. But no foreign aid met them at the Thai border. The ethnic insurgents had to struggle to feed and equip their own troops, and they could provide the dissidents only with a handful of weapons. 
These ethnic groups also couldn't match the strength of Burma's Communist Party. The Communists had 10 to 15,000 troops, controlled 8,000 square miles along the Chinese border, and had vast quantities of arms and ammunition supplied by the Chinese from 1968 to 1978. In a speech on August 5, 1989, the widely feared chief of Burma's military intelligence service, Brigadier General Kinyon, said, Communist underground elements have attempted to cause disturbances and civil unrest throughout the country in their efforts to grab state power. They have infiltrated various political parties and due to unavoidable circumstances, the army had to assume responsibility for the state. The pro-democracy movement originally had no links with the Communist Party. But after the bloody crackdown, vengeful urban dissidents may have accepted arms from any source. Thus it became imperative for the Rangoon junta to neutralize as many of the border insurgencies as possible, especially the powerful communist rebel army. An even more dangerous situation arose in March and April of 1989. In northeastern Shan state, the locally recruited hill tribe ranks of the communist fighting force revolted against their old leaders. They simply were tired of fighting for an ideology they considered alien with little reference to their daily lives. Their staunchly communist leaders had to flee back to China, where they had lived in exile in the 1950s and 60s. The former communist army soon split up. Some mutineers asked to join other rebel armies along the southern Thai border. If this occurred, the urban dissidents there would now gain access to the vast stockpiles of arms and ammunition held by the northern mutineers. The Rangoon junta was obviously worried. Within weeks, marriages of convenience were negotiated between Burma's ruling military and various rebels. The mutineers promised that they would not attack government forces and that they would sever ties with other rebel groups. In exchange, they were granted unofficial permission to engage in any kind of business. The policy had been practiced once before with the Kakwe Ye Home Guards during the 1960s and early 70s. These tactics worked. The armed rebellion, which the urban dissidents had hoped to launch from the border areas, never materialized. The consequences for the country and the outside world were disastrous. Many of the leaders of the mutiny already were long involved in the local opium trade, like the Gomindang before them. Even the commanders of the communist rebel army had turned increasingly to the drug trade when their original ideals had faded. Now, drug activities surged. Harder drugs were soon to emerge from the former communist base along the Chinese frontier. Official U.S. figures indicate that Burma's opium yield rose from 1,280 tons in 1988 to over 2,000 tons in 1991. Other estimates were considerably lower, but all observers were agreed that Burma's total production increased dramatically over that period. Probably in an attempt to justify old policies, David L. Westrate, Assistant Administrator for Operations in the U.S. Drug Enforcement Administration, said in March 1990 that Burmese government troops engaged in drug eradication efforts had been withdrawn to control the upheaval. Since the military pullback from the north, narcotics have moved along major unsecured roadways by vehicle. Under current U.S. government policy, Foreign aid to Burma, which includes assistance for narcotics enforcement, has been indefinitely suspended. Burma did not conduct opium eradication operations during the 1989-90 growing season. Due to these factors, opium prices should decline further because of abundant supplies in the Golden Triangle. Other sources, however, dismissed these claims. They argued that the Burmese army had never seriously been involved in drug eradication. They said that the troops went to Rangoon not from the northeastern opium-growing areas, but from the non-opium-growing Karen state in the southeast. Burma's opium boom probably was caused by a number of other factors. Several growing seasons enjoyed near-perfect weather conditions. 
Burma's demonetization in 1987 had also played an important role. After that, most Burmese lost confidence in paper money and turned to traditional hard currencies. They now used gold and real estate in the towns and opium in the border areas. Paradoxically, U.S. aid before the 1988 crackdown may also have been a factor. The Los Angeles Times reported on July 24, 1990. The $18 million program, suspended in 1988 following a crackdown on human rights campaigners, financed the spraying of opium crops. But instead of curbing production, narcotics officials believe the program only inspired farmers in the opium areas to increase their planting in hopes of compensating for expected spraying losses. We sprayed them into overproduction, said a narcotics expert in Bangkok. After the communist mutiny, thousands of former communist soldiers returned to their villages in the hills. Many new laborers now supplied more raw opium to heroin refineries established by the former communist commanders in the Northeast. Within a year after the new treaty with the Junta in Rangoon, 27 heroin refineries had sprung up in the former communist base area near the Yunnan frontier. Both chemicals and heroin were transported more or less openly in convoys of trucks along government-held roads. This flooded Burma's domestic market, plus the neighboring countries of China and India, with drugs. The Hong Kong Weekly Far Eastern Economic Review reported on March 28, 1991. Until only a few years ago, Burma had no more than 30,000 registered drug addicts. But unofficial estimates today put the figure at 160,000, of whom at least 50% are already infected with the AIDS virus. Increased drug use now brought with it a new scourge, the deadly infectious disease known as AIDS. On March 15, 1990, U.S. Attorney General Richard Thornburg announced that a grand jury in New York had indicted opium warlord Kun Sa, the supposed king of the Golden Triangle. The Burmese military apparently discovered an opening. It formerly tolerated Kun Sa as long as he fought the communists, but this arrangement was no longer necessary for Burma. By sacrificing Kun Sa, Burma's junta apparently believed that it would be able to break its estrangement from the international community. The U.S. Drug Enforcement Administration, or DEA, appeared willing to play along with this cynical game, perhaps hoping that Kun Sa would be captured. In late April 1990, the DEA in Rangoon even masterminded a media blitz, arranging for a CBS camera team to film a drug-burning ceremony organized by Burma's military authorities. The State Department dismissed the bonfire as a publicity stunt, underlining their differences with the DEA in handling the interrelated drug and human rights problems. The DEA, on the one hand, seemed inclined to pursue the old policy, assisting any government that claimed it was fighting drugs. But the State Department appeared to have adopted a more critical approach. Little had actually changed in the Golden Triangle. In fact, Senator Daniel P. Moynihan of New York had anticipated this when he condemned the Burmese junta in 1989. The Burmese regime has done nothing more than change business partners, turn on Kun Sa, and get the public relations advantage that the DEA is giving them. Use the former Communist Party of Burma and turn them into a willing drug trafficking partner. When the Burmese military assumed power in 1988, it announced to the surprise of many that it intended to hold what it termed free and fair elections. But a year and a half of repression followed, with continuing arrests and summary trials of pro-democracy activists. Nevertheless, the election was indeed held on May 27, 1990. Burma's military seemed to think it had the situation under control, especially since the foremost leader of the pro-democracy movement, Aung San Suu Kyi, had been placed under house arrest in July 1989. 
But the outcome was a landslide victory for Aung San Suu Kyi's party, the National League for Democracy. It captured an astounding 80% of the seats in the 485-seat National Assembly. The League was opposed by the military National Unity Party, which had ruled Burma from 1962 to 1988 and now won only 10 seats. Burma's military refused to convene the Assembly. It arrested between 60 and 70 elected candidates. At least two died under torture in Rangoon prisons, and about a dozen candidates fled to the Thai border. The rest were intimidated into silence. Much of the Western world took little notice of events in Burma. Their attention in Southeast Asia usually focused on China and the fallout from Tiananmen Square. But Aung San Suu Kyi was noticed by many, and in 1991 she was awarded the most prestigious of international honors, the Nobel Peace Prize. Some American politicians have argued that a Burma policy must choose either human rights or drug suppression. But the Burmese opposition has argued that the two issues are inseparable. They insist that Burma's human rights record and its army's desire to hold on to power at any cost has led to massive opium production and a booming heroin trade. Any anti-drug policy in Burma surely has little chance of success unless it is linked to a political solution that ends Burma's decades-long civil war and unless a meaningful democratic process emerges in Rangoon, the strife will continue and the heroin will flow. We hope you have enjoyed this presentation of the Golden Triangle by Knowledge Products. The script for this presentation is by Bertel Lindner. The script is edited by Mike Hassel and produced by Pat Charles. Vocal characterizations are by Michael Argyle, Dan Church, Pat Childs, Rob Daniel, Travis Hardison, Anders Otterlin, Grit Bakhtranon, Craig Pryor, Michael Mint, Wynn Mint, and Robert Wynn. Music is by Ralph Childs, recorded at Soundtech Studio and Archer Productions. This material may not be copied in whole or in part without the written permission of the copyright owner. Copyright 1992 by Carmichael and Carmichael Incorporated. This presentation of the world's political hotspots is a part of the Audio Classics series. This continuing series of audio presentations discusses the great ideas and events of history in their historical and intellectual context.